I frequently hear from listeners who are thinking of starting their own podcasts. My advice is always the same. Why not? If that applies to you, let me tell you about Anchor. It is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 49 of quarantine from my now nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the city of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and the host of Mark McGrath's 120 Weekends of the 90s on 9 over on Sirius XM. Hello and welcome back, our dear friend, Mark McGrath. Hey, Michael Tully, off the charts, but always in your heart. And always nice to be here, my friend. Good to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you too. These uh, weeks and days and months, I feel like time is simultaneously moving slower and faster than I have ever experienced life in my entire life. Certain things that happened over the summer, or my goodness, before March of last year, seem like a different lifetime, and yet it is hard to believe it has been just about a month since you and I last spoke. That's interesting. When you put the time in that perspective, I, when you said my now nine-year-old son's, you know, bedroom, I, I remember you were—he was a baby. You, you, you know, I mean, my kids are ten, and, and they're going to soon be eleven. So, uh, though we were kind of in suspension this last year, time has gone by fast and slowly. I think it's a very intuitive statement. Though I will say this, and I know I'm usually the the, the voice of the I'm the half-empty glass guy. I'm starting to get gigs now. They're confirmed. It's in motion. I think COVID, at the very least, people are tired of it. Uh, Best case scenario, the vaccinations and everything are starting to work and the numbers coming down. So the restaurants are opening up here. I mean, Newsom was about to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, what what do they call it? Revoked. What do they call it? My, my, My brain. They're, recall, they're still recall. talking about they're still talking about recalling the governor of California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's about to be recalled. So he, I mean, he was about a, a, a day away from shutting us down three for three months, and then he saw the recall was really a real deal. All of a sudden, restaurants are opening up. So I just think there's a, a huge COVID fatigue that is kind of behind us, uh, and the science seems to prove that. So that is the good news. That's why you're going to cheer Mark McGrath this morning. I see. Yeah. You, well, in, in a certain, to a certain extent, you uh, you reap what you sow when you elect a guy who looks like Christian Bale in American Psycho to be your governor. <laughs> Boy, is that true. Nothing makes me more angry. And you'll go on a social media post and you see like, oh, call me daddy. Oh, daddy. Oh, daddy. Call me. That's all. The, that's all the comments. I go there for like little political discourse or you see what people are saying. It's all like, call me daddy. He's so hot. And, you know, like you said, you get you get what you get. You know, careful what you ask for. You got a good looking Wait, governor. I didn't know about this. I don't know who you're following on social media, but our governor's a sex symbol. G- Gavin Newsom? Yeah. 
is an absolute sex symbol. They call him, oh. call me, they call him Z Daddy or something. I, I, dude, I've done, and it's not even a deep dive. If you look on like the California uh, Instagram, yeah. state of California governor's website, it's all daddy, daddy, call me, ooh, it's, it's very strange. Now, I had heard that between the CNN anchor and the New York governor that there was a growing number of people identifying as Cuomosexuals these days. <laughs> That's great. It's awesome. <laughs> Though that has backfired ridiculously. Yes. We're looking mm -hmm. at Cuomo uh, about nine months ago as a possible presidential candidate. Now it looks like he might be going to jail. Welcome to politics. I mean, what there's a crazy world. Very often a fine line between the two. You know what? Absolutely. I mean, but you know, it's like anything. You shine a little light on something, and you did, you yeah. know, and, and then you know, it's things get exposed. That's right, and that's why we are here to take solace in the safety of the distant past, and uh, specifically the new music releases of nineteen eighty-one. We are up to February already. And before we can talk about those and some of the music current events of that same era, it turns out that I missed a fairly noteworthy new music release from last month, from January of 1981. I don't judge you to be a big Joy Division guy. Um, I would love to have that retro fitted, I'm cool, always love Joy Division. I'm an Ian Curtis disciple. Um, I'm not a New Order fan because I love Joy Division. I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy. Very yeah. atonal, and it, and it took a long mm -hmm. time for Joy Division to catch up to Mark McGrath, not Mark McGrath to catch up to Joy Division. Does that make any sense? Even though I said myself in third no. person. <laughs> Just keep doing that for the rest of the show. I love it. <laughs> Is there anything worse and more douchey than that? But yeah, I mean, by the way, I bought a Joy Division t-shirt in high school because I thought it was cool. I'd never heard the music. I was that guy. I was like, okay, I have to like them because they're considered the pantheon of coolness. In your defense, it's a very cool shirt. It's an amazing logo. It's an amazing logo yeah. and shirt. And I love I love what became uh, of Joy Division, New Order. I just defined my my high school experiences. But no, right. did, did, I, did I pray to the altar of Ian Curtis? No, I don't. And I still don't, and I didn't. But, but, but in terms of releases, an absolute release that we, we did miss on that. I mean, we, that, is a, that, that, that is kind of the ship that launched a thousand ships, if you will. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the seminal alternative acts and with ripples and repercussions extending so far that ultimately even the, the mainstream, a lot of what happened in, in very mainstream 80s pop can be drawn back to New Order, which of course then be, can be drawn back to Joy Division. For those who may not know, New Order and Joy Division are the same band, except their iconic and short-lived frontman took his life, and so they rebranded, but otherwise, I, there may have been a couple of small um, lineup changes, but it is it is one continuous act, and it's not New Order, I'm sorry, it's not Joy Division that we neglected to discuss last time, it is actually the first single release from New Order that came out in January of 1981. What what year did, uh, well, is it Pleasure Principle? Ple no, that's Jack Jackson, Pleasure Control. What, <laughs> Which I what, personally what? prefer. <laughs> Me too. Know who you're talking to. Yeah. But you, you know what's interesting about Ian Curtis? He, the success of Joy Division was was uh, posthumous. You know, he, he he wasn't he was not there to see it. Mm -hmm. And I think the single "Love Will Tear Us Apart" was like maybe two to three weeks after uh, his death. I wonder if he'd 
could see, had a magic ball, could see the success of Joy Division if he would have stayed around. That's just something I'm, I'm posing to you. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it's impossible to know, but it's just an interesting, uh, it's something to uh, pine over. Okay, I'll tell you, let's get really dark here. There's this documentary that I've always been fascinated by but don't really care to watch about the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco and specifically oh, the, the bridge, the huge number of people who've taken their lives by jumping off of it, right? Gnarliest, gnarliest documentary of all time, but be prepared. I'm not going you're, to watch you're, it. You're, no, no. Oh, you haven't seen it. No. You haven't seen it. It, it. It'll put you in a real weird place, man. You know, real weird place. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. I, I thought you saw it. Well, no, I, I read about it, but did not see it. And the thing that I took away from reading about it was the one person or one of the very few people who hurled themselves off of the Golden Gate Bridge and survived said that on their way down, they realized what a horrible mistake they'd made and wished they could take it back. And that, to me, is almost the darkest part of it, is it makes you wonder how many people, in the midst of taking their lives, have that moment of regret. I think it's very likely that Ian, Curtis, uh, Ian Curtis would wish that he didn't take his life, because I think that that's probably fairly typical of suicide attemptees in general, even the ones who were not on the verge of becoming rock stars. I, I think yeah, that's entirely right on the nose. And I think you too wrote an amazing song about Michael Hutchins' death. Yeah. Stuck in a moment. Right. You know, stuck in a moment, you can't get it. It's a beautiful song. And it's about the, the death of Michael Hutchins. Some some argue that it might not have been a suicide. It might have been a, a sexual thing. We don't know. But the, the point is, Bono was saying you were stuck in a moment you couldn't get out of. I mean, it, sometimes it's just a moment. Yeah. And you just got to see it through the other side. Now, the bridge is so gnarly. I'm going to go back to that because now, I mean, I haven't seen it in 10 years. But what they do is they, they put a stationary camera on a place, a couple cameras facing the bridge, and would just film people jumping off. I think, now, now, now my, my, my stats might be wrong, but I think 50 people a year or something crazy jump off the bridge or maybe wanted something crazy. But there was like three survivors and they tracked down the survivors and interviewed them. That's what you got what you were talking about. The person instantly regretted when they jumped. Fortunately, the person survived. So it, it's just, it's called the bridge. It's fascinating. They, they, you'll start seeing a person walking and then you'll see them climbing the other side and then they start zooming in on them and they're filming this happening. They're watching a preventable death happening. It's, it's one of the strangest and, and it'll, it, it, it has such a, 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 I'm still can't even like process it 10 years later after watching that one. So totally Best to stay away from that one, for sure. Well, the other thing that I took away from reading about it was that they were keeping a tally of how many people had taken their lives by jumping off of the Golden Gate Bridge, and they were coming up on some inauspicious milestone. It may have been 1,000 people. And as I recall, they had actually stationed police or some sort of security at either side to keep people from claiming that number and, fi and finally, somebody managed to run an end around, like, you know, taking a kickoff return in for a touchdown. And it is so bizarre to have that sort of drive coupled with the, the drive being to end your own life. I mean, that's just one of the most real life black mirror facts that, oh. I've, that I've ever come across. I mean, you know what's crazy about this person? He had a goal. Yeah, I know. Exactly. He had something to live for. Unfortunately, the goal was something to die for. Yeah, you the goal to I mean? live for was dying, which is bizarre. Well, which is so so strange. He had a passion 
for living, which was dying. Yes. That, that's so bizarre. And there's so many deep Black Mirror dives in that. You're right. But uh, yeah, no. So it, it, I know you love documentaries like I do. Um, that and there's something called Zachary. Dear Zachary. It's another crazy documentary that will put you in the dark place as well. Uh, but but you know what? What led us here? Ian Curtis and Joy Division. They are still putting us all in a dark place after all these years. After all these years, and that maybe is the legacy that he would have wanted. Who knows? So Joy Division released two albums and an EP. I think the album to which you were referring is known as Unknown Pleasures, recorded and released in 1979. Their second and final album... Closer was released two months after his death, spawning the single Love Will Tear Us Apart. And then roughly six months later, New Order comes out with this single, and it's actually a re-recorded Joy Division song, only now with Bernard Sumner on on lead vocals. And uh, you know something I've always found really remarkable about him? I love his his vocals, um, but it's, it's, it's all style. It's very little substance. I'm not sure that his vocal range reaches one full octave and yet it's amazing because he makes it sound like he is doing so much you know bizarre love triangle that every i get down on my knee as if you right as if you're straining that's your speaking voice dude (laughs) it's all it's all breathy yeah you know it's all he was a reluctant singer they didn't want to get another lead singer yeah they they and so they describe it's either gonna be you hooky or you bernard yeah you know and so Bernard just goes, all right, I'll do it. And it's so I, he had to develop a voice. He didn't know he could sing. I don't think the rest of the band knew either. So that's where that sort of, I think that's where that breathy thing comes from. And it happened to work amazingly. And the band belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as far as I'm concerned. And, and another, another thing about Joy Division, they were the first band, I don't want to say to make punk rock palatable, palatable, but at the time, punk rock was not palatable in 79. It just wasn't. You were still doing with atonal, dissonant sounds. Um, it was still a very fringe element of the music business. The Sex Pistols kind of went out in this big, gigantic ball of flame. So Joy Division was a great, along with Gang of Four and bands like Killing Joke, a great sort of bridge into the 80s, which became New Romantic and stuff like that, where the songs were great. The songs had meaning as opposed to for this and for that. It was like love will tear us apart. So it, they're very necessary bands that led to what became alternative music in the 90s let's be honest yeah no doubt about it and and to a large extent what also became popular music in in the in the 80s so sort of stuck stylistically very understandably between their roots as joy division and the first little sprouts of new order i'll play a little bit of the first new order single there's two versions of this that were released in the same year i hope i've got the right one they're both very similar but the song is uh is called ceremony i can't can't say I was familiar with ceremony. Here you go. That is everywhere I want to be. You know, they find a riff and they really ride that riff, don't they? They don't get off that thing. No. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> New Order became so known as like a bass band. Yeah. You know, like, oh, yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Hooky, Peter Hook, yeah. the bass player, has yet to find his groove there. He's still going boom, boom. I know. Do you know what I mean? That was early New Order. I, I was aware of that song because, again, growing up here, K-Rock, yep. 
fed us such a healthy diet of all of that post-punk, early New Row stuff. So I was familiar with it, but it's interesting to listen back mm -hmm. to what New Order became. Yes. The layers and textures that became your a lot more synthy. They became a synth band. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, um, they're, the only, they're the only band that I can think of off the top of my head who did the lead bassist thing that sounded like uh, more than a gimmick. Now, say what you yeah. say what you will about Primus. I think Primus are a gimmick band, and at the same time, they're a good they're a good band, and he's an amazing musician. But it is it's a gimmicky, quirky sound by design. Ned's Atomic Dustbin may not be familiar to everyone, but they had success essentially melodically and vocally ripping off the Smiths while musically ripping off New Order. And instead right. of everybody has two guitarists, well, Ned's Atomic Dustman had two bassists and one guy was the low bassist and one guy was the high bassist. But there was nothing that he was doing that wouldn't have been better on a keyboard or a guitar. I think my personal favorite New Order song is Regret. And that's driven by a bass riff that is better on bass than it would have been on any other instrument. That's entirely well said. That, that was kind of getting back to my point. I don't think he, they found their right. song, what their niche was going to be. And you know, it's a very another bass-driven band. You're not, you don't realize as much until you see them live. And very much from this family is The Cure. Mm. There's so much bass that and it like it just is always running. I mean, not running, it's always just moving. And so I, I think... For some reason, these bands, New Order, The Cure, really hung their hat on bass-driven songs that that were that, but also wrote beautiful songs. I mean, you can't just let's drive the bass. You know, you, you know the songs have to be great, but they are very bass-heavy that you don't necessarily realize until you break down what's happening as a musician in the song. Right. I guess there are some other bands that do that. They just don't. They're usually also doing lots of interesting guitar stuff. So you have to yeah. listen really carefully to catch it. Paul McCartney is nearly always doing incredibly fun stuff with a Beatles song. Absolutely. But you kind of, it's there subliminally until you really pay attention to it. Andy Rourke and the Smiths, who are happening at the exact same time, is an incredible bass player that gets hidden in plain sight because of Morrissey and Johnny Marr. Yes, exactly. And even like the Gold Hebrew Killing Joke and Gang of Four were all really bass-driven bands. So a lot of bass. A lot of bass coming out of that post-punk uh, late 70s, early 80s UK, if you will. But getting back to Primus is interesting. I, I wonder if... Uh, um, Less? If, 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 yeah, if, if he can sing. I'm curious if he can sing. I love it, and it all works. He's the greatest. He's so good at bass, he's not even playing bass. He's, he's, he decided, like, like Stanley Jordan plays guitar, he's playing in his own way. I'm curious to know if... The man knows how to sing. If Les knows how to sing. Yeah, for, and I say that with all due respect, no, going for me. Sure. For all of his wacky side projects that he's had over the years, has he ever done the wacky <laughs> side project project where he plays music and sings songs? That that's that's a very <laughs> interesting, interesting uh statement. Because like, has he ever taken acoustic guitar and just played Hey Jude? Right. I would love to hear it because mm -hmm. he's so talented. Yeah. I mean, he's so good on bass, you don't even think of him like when you think of the world's greatest bass players, because he's on some other level of shit. I mean, watch him play. I love his mannerisms. I love watching that band. Yeah. But I'm just curious to know if he could sit down and play, uh, you know, Hey Jude on an acoustic guitar. Right. It's like a, a great knuckleball pitcher. Can you throw a fastball? Right. We don't even know. Exactly. That's right. He's the uh, Phil, Phil Necro of rock and roll. <laughs> That's, I, get that, I get that reference, and I appreciate it. So a I'm so glad you did, because I thought you might have been a little young for <laughs> no, it. No, no, no. I grew up as a Yankees fan. I remember both Phil and Joe Necro. That's exactly right. So a couple of um, related musical 
news notes of the era on January 18th of 1981, Wendy O. Williams of the Plasmatics was arrested in Milwaukee for simulating masturbation on stage with a sledgehammer. Wow. Can, can, can you imagine what, what, how innocuous that is now? Yeah. Like everybody and their mother does that to get a guitar player, you know, like, like uh, Taylor Swift, when someone's rocking, we'll go over there and simulate that. No, it wasn't with the sledgehammer. It was a little <laughs> different. And knowing Wendy Yo, that sledgehammer probably went in certain orifices, you know, because she didn't mess around. Also, she came out with her titties in plastic. Yeah, so, I don't know if she invented the duct tape X's over the nipples, but she definitely perfected it and took it to a level theretofore unseen. She was a really hard figure for me to wrap my head around when I first encountered her. She was still alive. She subsequently took her life a few years later, but out of circulation by the time I heard about the plasmatics in the early 90s, and it was still that sort of society. Okay, you know with, uh, Gloria Steinem, who's the famous feminist? Of course. People used to say yep. to her at the time, well, why are you a feminist? You're you're beautiful. You don't have to you don't have to stand up for your brains. You've got looks, which was obviously the reason why she was doing it. In the first place, Wendy O. Williams was a prototypical 1980s babe who decided to take the amazing physical attributes that God had bestowed upon her to run around with chainsaws and blow things up with with tanks. Right. Like using the power of her feminine wiles to make it masculine, and I will beat the shit out of you with all this femininity. Right. I mean, she was so far ahead at what she was doing, you know? Problem is, Plasmatics didn't have any songs. They weren't, they didn't write very good songs, but I don't think that was the purpose. It was more performance art than anything else, you know? Yeah, they're ultimately probably more comparable to like a, a guar. I don't know that we really need to share. I They had put out New Hope for the Wretched, their debut album uh, a couple of months before that. I kind of dug some of the stuff that they did later on when they crossed over more or less into full-blown metal. They made some, yeah. some I mean, for lack, honestly, some terrific stripper anthems is what they ended up. Yeah, with. no, they got good good production behind them. I, I you know, I <laughs> ironically saying that they were trying to play, they were trying to play in the majors. Yes, you know, they they messed around with a little punk rock new wave. You know, let let's chainsaw a car on stage. But then you know there was a label, I think Metal Blade or something, that said let's take a chance with them. Yeah, put them with a real producer, real stage, and you know they they. I'm with you. I, I, I I'm going to give that band a chance every day and on Sunday. You know what I mean? I just had never spoke. I wanted to like them. I had the t-shirt because I thought it was cool. It is cool I shirt. just, you know, my, I, I thought the aesthetic was always way cooler than what the content was, which happens with a lot of bands, you know? I, I, I think they really do have one song. Do you know their song, Rock and Roll? Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. So I'll, I'll I'll put that in a link to uh to this episode when I put it up. It has nothing to do with 1981 February in the slightest. But to me, that is their their tune, even though it has nothing to do with the heart and soul of the core of the early Plasmatics um, punk years. It remind me of uh, you ever listen to early G.G. Allen before he became G.G. Allen? A tiny little bit when I interviewed the guy who made the documentary. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. You, yeah, that's right. You told me about that. There's just like, you know, I want to rock. And we're going to party all night. And it's Gigi Allen. He's all metaled out. Yeah. You're like, oh, my God. And you can catch that video on YouTube. Make sure you check it out. Um, but it was very plasmatics-y, if you will, in style, content, and attitude, which I love. Um, so uh, and then, then we got the lovely Gigi and all that. 
in uh, on the 24th of January 1981 I didn't know about this Aerosmith lead singer Steven Tyler was injured in a motorcycle crash that hospitalized him for two months I did not know that the guy who was as acrobatic as any lead singer I've ever seen David Lee Roth included had been hospitalized for two months he apparently left no physical mark on him whatsoever did, did it say there must have been a spinal injury of some sort to have been in the hospital that long or certainly a head injury? Because, like you said, that man is 70 something now and he's still running around stage like Mick Jagger. You know what I mean? He gives you a show and he can do he did the I don't think he's doing the back bends and the back flips anymore, but he was doing them damn near into his 60s. You know, he was I'm curious what the injury was. He was under the influence of drugs and alcohol. No. <laughs> In 81? Yeah, Steven no. Tyler? The famous teetotaler, one time. Yeah. <laughs> they had just invented wine coolers, and he couldn't resist himself. <laughs> right. Oh, no, no, no. He split open his heel? He was hospitalized for two months with a with a, with a boo-boo on his heel? Well, you know what? Hospital stays were a little longer back then. You know what I mean? That's true. So. This was before Obamacare. And we... <laughs> You always hit me with these things, but I'm not ready. And then, I, then I'm like, okay, I'll go, go ahead. Uh, oh, and also we've talked more than once about Christopher Cross and his controversial best new artist win, and I sort of quasi-defended that when we spoke about it recently. You pointed out that the pretenders perhaps were more worthy winners of that. I had forgotten just how many Grammys he won it was perhaps egregious for him to win the album of the year category, beating out Pink Floyd's The Wall. Yeah, yeah, but you know what they say: hindsight is twenty twenty. You know what I mean? I mean, we've got the we've got the uh, advantage of history on our side and seeing what things became. Yeah. At the time, Christopher Cross looked like he was going to be uh, Elton John legacy sort of, you, you know, the performer. He proved himself, mm-hmm. written a couple great songs. Also developed their own style and ushered in basically what became Yacht Rock, you know. So even though Michael McDonald was already on it, I know you you purists, leave me alone. But <laughs> but but you know what I mean? At, at the time, I understand the the exaltation of Christopher Cross there. Now I've got a very personal Christopher Cross story I've told you before, where he gave us guitars. Yep. So he will always be in the deepest recesses of my heart. I love that man. So I'm a Christopher Cross defender. So there's one more piece of news that will segue us into the actual new releases of the month. I did not know this story. This is an incredible piece of musical history, cultural history, and a very sad piece of history. We've already spoken, I think it was in December of 1980, that John Lennon was murdered outside of Uh Dakota in New York. I did not know that on his person... At that moment, he was carrying the master tape of a song that he had just recorded with Yoko Ono. He had played guitar on it, and legend has it, he even played a specific Rickenbacker guitar that was one of his, like, most one of the guitars he was most strongly identified with as the Beatles. He hadn't used in many, many years, perhaps even since the Beatles, on the recording of a song with Yoko, which she finally released in tribute to him. Uh in February of I mean, imagine it was the black and white Rickenbacker you know the one that was just so John Lennon associate I mean probably had a few of them but I'm assuming it was that guitar just to paint a, a uh, mental image of what's happening on that so uh, do you know the song Walking on Thin Ice I, I, I'm not aware of it no I don't know of this story either mm-hmm. 
I, I'm always curious to hear stories about John Lennon and, you know, what was in his pockets and what was not when he died. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's fascinating to me. Yeah, I know he was working on Double Fantasy and all that. You know, there's a lot, there was a lot going on there. But I can't believe I don't know this song. It's done some damage. I had a lot of trouble finding the original version because of all the cover versions and remixes and re-releases. It's had enough legs, at least, that Yoko has seen fit to milk this particular track for, for decades. But it's an interesting piece of music beyond, I think, its tiny little place in history. Take a listen to Walking on Thin Ice, credited to Yoko Ono, but clearly a collaboration between the two. Yoko Ono thing ever released no doubt. by any entity ever. No, and and it, and it's and, and the song draws your attention to her unique and um, not traditional vocal stylings. But musically, considering that this comes out before, say Duran Duran, yeah, I would yeah, say this yeah. this actually for a guy who is a classic rocker, and I'm assuming John Lennon had quite a bit to do with the musical direction of this song. Yeah really pretty amazingly anticipates a lot of what is to follow shortly thereafter. Without a doubt. I mean, I was getting a heavy, scary monsters, David Bowie feel out of the, the guitar, the little guitar uh, uh, accents. Of, mm -hmm. And then da -ga -da -ga -da -ga -da -ga, like that driven guitar thing. So I'd be curious with all due respect to Yoko Ono, what John Lennon would have done on that track. You know what I mean? Cause that was so, out of off, well, I'll say off brand for what a Lennon Beatles track would have been. Mm -hmm. I would have been so curious to what his take would have been on a evolution a la what what Bowie did. You know what I mean? Which is what he was going for. He was in he was downtown in New York. He was going to the clubs. Oh, yeah. He was going to CBs. He was going to Max's Kansas City. So all he was soaking up by osmosis all that music. So this is an early new wave track. It is. So it by is. Yoko Ono, end of story. Right. Well, CB's in Max's Kansas City and also Studio 54, which there's more of an evident Studio 54 influence on that than there is any CBGB's influence. Good, good point. Maybe Nile Rodgers might have been in the, uh, in the studio next door or something. He, you know? he might have been in the studio with them for all I know, but... It, that is, there's a critical difference between disco and post-disco, and that has made the leap, in my opinion, musically. Yes, without a doubt. Okay. Without a doubt. So, elsewhere... So, so, so Tully, just, just, just to backtrack, that particular piece of music yes. was in some form a demo tape, an acetate tape, on John Lennon's person when he was murdered. John Lennon was clutching a tape of the final mix when he was shot. The song was both a critical and commercial success at the end of the year so it peaked at number 58 on the u.s charts but gained it says major club and underground airplay i'm willing to believe that that is 
true. New Music Express over in England called it the number 10 best track of the year, although obviously the last thing that John Lennon was involved with was going to be graded on a curve. John Lennon was a fan. At some point, Yoko released an extended version that had John in studio saying, Yoko, I think you've just recorded your first number one. Wow. Yeah. I love those tidbits. That's fascinating. Yeah. And you know what's great? She didn't she didn't get she doesn't have that characteristic warbling no. yet that she became so known for. Indeed. Uh maybe she was tired of the uh, of the, uh, the, the the pleasurable tones of the uh, early new wave movement. So elsewhere in new music, February 1981, a once in a generation performer arrives on the scene, unable to find interest from a major or even indie label. He borrows money and self-funds and self-releases an EP. He prints 1,000 copies of it, but it becomes a phenomenon, and he launches himself into someone who is still a vibrant force in the music culture to this day. Okay? Love the stories. Releasing that obviously fun track would be able to play theaters and have a number one record eventually 40 years down the line from that. Yep. Yep. His attention to musical detail, the genius for him is so often in the detail. Like, you, you, well, it just worked soup to nuts because you'd hear the title and you go, oh my God, that's so perfect. But the way he'd throw in the, the, the vocal flourishes. Like, I, yes. I, I recently rewatched, there's a, uh, God, what the hell is it? called there's a, a documentary that he put out that he just you know stitched together a couple of music videos his earliest music videos the complete owl is what it's called um with some some other stuff that he filmed and i love rocky road the music video for that just his total conviction as a physical performer is i mean it's really up there with like a jim carrey and he doesn't yeah. get credit for that he commits so goddamn hard to being so serious about stuff that is so stupid and he's so note perfect with the way that he does it both vocally and physically he's really for as beloved as he is i i have argued and will continue to argue he remains actually pretty underrated oh i, I completely agree with you the talent there is unjust you know it, it's it's on it's it's the talent level is 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 never been matched i mean look he started off like well, he was on a you know he was on the uh the, God, fuck, the accordion the goddamn accordion i'm having a brain freeze today forgive me and he started off on the accordion and obviously didn't have a lot of money and i remember hearing that song for the first time on dr demento That's which right. was out here on kmet back in the day and of course as a kid it was the greatest thing i ever heard we loved him but then he became when he got a little money a little bit of production he was able to you know to to really do these incredible videos and 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 side-by-side -side songs of like 
like eat it and all these things that, that were just so well produced and so well sung. Like you said, the affectation of everything, like this could have been a one note, you know, accordion fun thing and you're gone, but he evolved as an artist. You know, imagine saying that about Weird Al and became this incredible, unstoppable force that was never gonna go away because there were always songs to be made fun of, which was such a beautiful career path for him. Dr. Demento, by the way, is the person who lent him the money to make that initial EP. Oh, I didn't know that at all. Huge button. And the the evolution not only of Al, but of his band. He's always been very, very generous in sharing credit with his band. I think he's had the same exact band the whole entire time. If he's gonna do 10 different artists songs they need to really really faithfully recreate the recordings and tones and playing style of you know that's right you got to be michael jackson's band on one song and cindy lauper's band on the next and they did a really credible job of of pulling that off absolutely and not not like he just stays in genres either he'll no. do a hip-hop he'll yeah. do rock and roll he'll do country he'll do it all and like you said, that joke would be very tired if it wasn't done so well. That's right. I mean, the reason why we love Steel Panther so much is the guys are incredibly talented musicians. You know, that, that's a one-note joke that doesn't have any legs unless you're a world-class musician, which Steel Panther are, and, and Weird Al is. Yeah. You know, I, and I've, I've heard from everybody that he is the nicest human being that walks the face of the earth. And I love, oh, I love hearing those stories all the time. I heard he was so bummed out because he did uh, Amish Paradise. Coolio won a bunch of Grammys for, you know, Gangsta's Paradise and all that. And I think he was one of the only artists that was really pissed off at Weird Al for making making fun when it's really a tribute when Weird Al does one of your songs. And so he was, he, you know, he was, I remember there was a, a, a video of Coolio polishing his, his Grammy when he just post, he just won the award. And they're like, what do you think of Amish Paradise by uh, Weird Al? And he's like, Weird Al, better hope I don't see him, catch him out in the streets. And it was kind of a menacing thing. And now that I know Coolio, it was probably a joke. But Weird Al was so bummed out about that. He reached out, like through his lawyers, through his people. He wanted to have a sit down with Coolio. It like broke his heart that he was really angry with them. So the guy's the sweetest soul in the world, you know? That was, that's been my experience in encountering him briefly twice. Elsewhere in new releases, February 1981, a uh, performer who was already playing arenas with the the band with whom he was associated, stepped out solo. Legend has it this song was presented to that band and that they opted not to record it. So that's why he decided to do it solo. Uh, do you already know who I'm talking about? I think you're probably talking about Phil Collins. That is exactly right. Now, I read Mike Rutherford, the guitar player of Genesis book, Genesis book, because that's the kind of guy that I am. Yeah, and I would read that, too. Yeah. And, and he says that he said if everybody knows that to be true, he said, if Phil ever played us in the air tonight, it was a, such a different version that, you know, I didn't pass on that, basically. And it, it barely it barely matters. It effectively is a Genesis song, regardless of whether or not I'm, I'm sure the other two guys in Genesis don't feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> Right. But I'm, in fact, I meant a lot of people think it's a Genesis song. You know, seriously, you know? It goes both ways, too, because, like, I think um, there must be some misunderstanding. Yeah. I think that yeah. might that might be a Genesis song, but it, it plays like more of a Phil Collins song. I'm pretty sure that's all. It's always the same. It's just a shame. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. I think that's also a—although the the breakdown in that is a little bit more 
Genesis-y. Uh, this, like, fine line. This, this came pretty quickly after a Genesis release. Like they, they there was like a, a pretty short overlapping. So uh, the the, fra the fractures were already well within that group of Genesis. You know what I mean? I mean this this feels like it came on the heels of uh, there must be some misunderstanding and all that. You know, which so I think that was either Duke or Abacab, which is one of my favorite uh, Abacab, Genesis albums. Amazing. Right, but. He, he was just so goddamn prolific and just so hot for so long there, 80s into the 90s. He didn't split from them. He was just going back and forth between yeah. having hits solo and having hits with, with Genesis. He really couldn't go wrong. Of course, nobody needs to be reminded, but because it's such a great song, In the Air Tonight from Phil Collins. You can always tell when a drummer is producing this song. <laughs> the drums are so For loud sure. on that. Yeah, this is the point though where we need to point out the, I forget what it is, the gated reverb or whatever, the accidental thing. I think it was actually a Peter Gabriel, you know, a former Genesis member is making a solo album and um, Phil Collins is playing drums on it. And it's like, in addition to the the mics being, I mean, the drums being mic'd up the way drums are mic'd up, one to each, and then a couple of room ones. There's also like a talkback mic, which is literally just the way the performers are able to speak to the producer and engineer. Is it accidentally left on, and it creates this weird phasey reverb thing that becomes the drum sound of the the thing that makes classic rock people angry about 80s music even more than synthesizers and shoulder pads is this accidental... <laughs> Right, drum sound, and I I think it's in full effect on on that song right there. Yeah, and you, you know what's funny? It, it, it seems like such an obvious thing to capture the whole room with the room, you know, the PA mic. It just seems like an obvious, at least, option to have. You know, so yeah. being left on or not, it, it was a happy mistake that became a signature sound. My question to you is, what was in the water that Genesis was drinking? The talent that came out of that band. All of them, isn't whether you are Mike and Mechanics fan or not, they wrote some amazing songs. You know what I yeah. mean? So each little entity of that group, not only was a capable musician, they were capable songwriters. Rarely does that happen. Like happened in Queen. Each guy wrote a number one song by himself. Happened in Genesis. You know, not not within the band, but obviously Mike and the Mechanics, uh, Phil Collins by himself, Peter Gabriel by himself. It's it's really a unique anomaly when you have such incredible songwriting and musicianship in a band. And I think that they don't get that credit because people don't think of them jointly in quite that same way like like we do, for example, a, a Fleetwood Mac. Right. Because people don't revere. I don't revere. I'm a big Genesis fan, and I do not care for the Genesis Peter Gabriel stuff at all. Oh, so it, it's just that they did they weren't putting it together and we don't think of the big genesis song that mike rutherford wrote because they wrote collaborative they literally they jammed in a room and made songs up like that so there is no definitive mike rutherford genesis song the definitive mike rutherford stuff is mike and the mechanics right right and i, I you know look genesis wasn't trying to be that three minutes and 13 seconds pop act they were part of that prog 
renaissance, if you will, the second wave of prog music. Uh, and we're, we're doing the 14 minute long songs and the and the theatrics of Peter Gabriel. And that, that's what that's what they were doing. You know what I mean? So when they said, hey, let's cut it down. How about a verse, chorus, verse, chorus? And they happen to be they happen to be amazing at it. So talent and is talent, my friend. It is. And that tends to be my absolute favorite thing in music is the band that has been doing something that's really off the beaten track when they finally decide to say, I wonder if we can take this crazy thing that we're doing and make three minute pop songs. The, the post, whatever you are like, I like blink 182 at the moment that they get post punk. That's when it gets really, really interesting to me. I like the Cocteau twins when they stop yeah. doing ambient things and say, what if we did pop songs made out of this crazy ambient thing that we just did for five borderline unlistenable albums? That tends yeah. to be that tends to be my sweet spot. And indeed it is for for Genesis as well. To put things in context, while Wendy Williams was there in Milwaukee getting arrested on some stage for simulating masturbation or just flat out masturbating with uh, <laughs> A sledgehammer, somebody might well have been driving by outside on the street with the radio on listening to this song, which was absolutely dominating the pop charts at that time. Doesn't seem to be a reason to change. You know, I feel so dirty when they start talking cute. I want to tell her that I love her, but the point is probably moot. Cause she's watching him with those eyes. What a masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, the production, the, the, the song, the vocal. Uh, you know, I watched the uh, Sammy Hagar thing recently, and I, I was surprised how involved Sammy Hagar was in Rick Springfield's career. Now, I don't know. If he co-wrote Jesse's Girl, he co-wrote a song for him that was a hit. Uh, oh, I know what he did. Um, uh, I've done everything for you. You've done nothing for me. That's a Sammy Hagar song. Oh, so, no kidding. I contemplated playing that instead of Jesse's Girl just because Jesse's Girl has been so beaten into the ground. It's almost hard to hear it with fresh ears. But Jesse's Girl is just so clearly the better song. But yeah, I also enjoy the, the follow-up single for just prototypical 80s Two fists in the air, guitar breakdowns. For right, a, right. For a, for a lightweight piece of pop, that's a really hard rocking, really anthemic breakdown. Oh, I agree. I mean, it it rocks. I mean, it rock. We we did a show with Rick Springfield about a year ago before it all went crazy. Like the guy's damn near. I think he's seven years old and yep. looks amazing. Still <laughs> rocks. I mean, there's so much energy coming off that stage, and his fan base is oh my god, they're they're militant. They're they're unbelievable. Don't yeah. get in the way of those women. They're they're a hardcore. And there's a great documentary out about Rick Springfield that you must watch if you haven't seen it. It's the comprehensive Rick Springfield experience. Fantastic. And he seems like a really cool dude as well. So I'm always Again, a sucker for those. Yeah, in my limited interaction, uh, a totally easygoing, fun-to-work-with guy. And yeah, there were a couple of... Uh, I had older cousins in my family who were devoted General Hospital and Rick Springfield fans at the time. So I, I, I can only imagine... Um, Juice Newton, as I think we mentioned before we started rolling, was exploding on the scene at this time. Uh, again, very similar to the Sheena Easton song that we talked about when we were discussing January of 1981 with her My Baby Works from 9 to 5 song, something that I think gets lost in the shuffle because a big hit from the 80s that sounds like a big hit from the 70s. 
Right? Exactly. Juice Newton falls in that category. Boy, Tully, you are so right about that. You, you could have told me that song came out in 73, you know? And, and there were, there, you know, Juice Newton is almost like an antidote from the past. Now, I, I was alive and, I, you know, I was 12, 13 years old when this was out. It was everywhere. She was a superstar. She is an asterisk now in the annals of pop history, which is so weird to me. Did, did she stop performing? Is she still alive? She had such gigantic songs, but I think she's falling into that classic thing we said last time, but she sounds so 70s that she can't possibly be of the decade of the 80s. Even this came out well into 1981, you know? So I, it's it's very strange phenomenon when an artist is almost demoted from the decade they're in. We kind of talked about it with Sheena Easton, you know? We're not going to have, we're not going to welcome you. Like if you saw Juice Newton on an 80s tour, you'd be like, uh -uh. get back in the 70s where you belong, you know? That is, uh, yeah, I think that's just about right. Wait, so I'm, I'm, I think it seems like she had a little bit more success than I was aware of. It says here in 1981, so she had that song, Queen of Hearts was the follow-up single to Angel Gigantic. of the Morning. Yeah, number one? That might have been number one. Okay, here's what I don't know what the hell is going on. I'm oh okay, I'm looking at country charts and now things are starting to make sense. Okay, Angel of the Morning, which we just listened to, the inspiration for the Shaggy song that was successful 20 years later, was a number four hit on the U.S. charts. Queen of Hearts was number two. The oh, sweet, giant. The sweetest, giant. sweetest thing I've ever known. A number seven hit. Love's been a little bit hard on me. A number seven hit. I don't know these songs. I mean, love, love's been a little bit hard on me. I mean, oh, you're a little okay. young, a little bit young, but um, she was also an artist that danced a lot. I'm sure one of the first country crossover female artists, if you will, because mm -hmm. she was rocking the pop, but she was dominating country as well. So maybe the fact that she's probably considered more of a country artist, I just don't see Juice Newton's coming to LA as she's playing at the House of Blues. I haven't well, no. seen. I, I haven't seen that. So I think she came out of the the country scene. It seems like she even had a band. She was with a band called Silver Spur before she had the mainstream success. This was a time when you could cross over into pop stardom from country a far more readily than than you can nowadays. Although you can also be a far bigger mainstream star being firmly ensconced in in country nowadays. So I think she probably it looks like her looking at her discography that she sort of retreated back to having country success after the gotcha. the mainstream stuff. I do a lot find of those it, artists were a lot of those artists were capitalizing on the success of Urban Cowboy. Mm -hmm. Remember that exploded sure. and then Mechanical Bulls were in every bar and so that people were like Mickey Gilly, they were letting people cross over in the pop for a little bit and you know, the yep. whole post disco thing happening. Um yep. But Alab is she still alive? Yeah, she's, I, I she, she's still alive, yes. How old is she? Is she 84 or is she 58? She is, I think she is 68 years old. Gotcha. God I'm, bless her. She looks great. I, mean, I don't know how recent her Wikipedia photo is. Yeah, I find that song culturally a little bit, uh, far more significant than I find it musically because the, like, I grew up watching like Three's Company and everybody's trying to go to the Regal Beagle and get laid. Yep. And this yeah. is the the seedy underside of the casual sex, women's lib, birth control, pre-AIDS culture yes. that was going mm -hmm. to be wrapping up pretty shortly 
after yes. this. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> oh! But you and, know what's weird? How, how come Angel of the Morning isn't a bigger, like, you know how, like, Don't Stop Believing is bigger now than it was when it came out by Journey? Angel of the Morning should be one of those karaoke... Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe I just haven't been in enough karaoke bars. It just seems... It seems like um, it should be more of a classic song than it is. I should hear it more on uh, retro radio. You know, I, I don't know. It's definitely carry, extremely karaoke-able. I think most ladies can sing that. And yeah, I, I, you're, you're right. I can see a, a, a drunk chick at a pub yeah. re- really sinking her teeth into that one. Yeah. I, I think you said, you, said it, you said it right there in a pub. I believe that's probably huge in the UK, but they just love their karaoke. Another big pop hit of uh, that was released, I think, in February of 1981. And set times a little hard for me to figure out when the was this when the album came out or when the single was released. But uh, Grover Washington Jr., wow, who I believe is a saxophonist, but mm-hmm. who had achieved widely credited with being one of the founding fathers of smooth jazz. Which may be a dirty word for other people, but <laughs> I love it. I, if I get in a taxi in Los Angeles and somebody's listening to ninety four seven The Wave, I consider that a big win over just about any other radio station they might be listening to. I can't agree with you enough because you might be hearing Anita Baker. Yeah, you might be hearing Al Jarreau. I mean, so I am. I am right there. The Wave used to be. I think the Wave used to be instrumental, bro. It used to be just all instrumental. So it was a bad word for a long time, and now it's now it's one of the most delightful stations there is in LA. And this is one of the most delightful pop songs of 1981 or any other year. Critically, Grover Washington Jr. featuring Bill Withers. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Just the two of us. Such a beautiful song, man. Just what yeah. a magical piece of music. Take that, Juice Newton. Right? And, yeah. and, and you know the shame about Bill Withers, bro, is that there's another documentary on him, which is fantastic, too. Still so Bill. I, yeah. Yeah, still Bill. It's, it's unbelievable. He kind of retired. Yeah. He stopped writing music. He wrote. He, he gave the, the gift of these incredible songs, some of the most beautiful songs ever written, and then just retired. He stopped performing. He stopped writing. And, and he, he was completely happy with the decision. You know, God bless him. It's just yeah. to have this incredible gift. And he was also a guy whose success came a little later in life to him. I think he was working on a, the, the docks or something. And very much like, uh, um, uh, you, you know, it's just one of those stories that like he just picked up a guitar. He bought a guitar on the way home, taught himself how to play and came up with, uh, you know, uh, just magic, you know. So I, I just, I, it's an interesting documentary. He, he went away on his own accord and was completely happy with the decision. Kind of like Barry Sanders quitting football, you know. Yeah, that's right. And he also said because he was such an outsider and because people considered him such a joke when he told them, well, I'm a songwriter. I'm going to be I'm going to make songs for a living. And they're like, you're 28 and you're not charismatic and you're not attractive and you don't know how to play guitar. What are you talking about? He said, when I started talking to record labels and they said, well, you need to write love songs about women. And he's like, well, no, I wrote a song about my grandma. (laughs) Right. 
because nobody was he wasn't in the system so he wasn't thinking as the system would have had him think which is what allowed him to you know do stuff that was actually original that song in my mind i i also it reminds me of um blue skies which willie nelson had a hit with the irving berlin song yeah it's a it's a neat little trick when you take something that has a very positive vocal lyrical message and you encase it in something that resolves to a minor key it makes you feel emotionally uh it's 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 a that's sort of how it touches your feels in a sort of unique way absolutely and you gotta tip the cap to grover washington there he didn't sax it all over you know what i mean the sax comes at the end of the song he lets Mm -hmm. the song play lets bill withers do his thing and then adds a very memorable sax run at there and i'm not a sax guy but yeah. I can play every note. I can air sax the hell out of that one because it's so perfectly executed. You know, that's right. It's, that's a, right. it's a beautiful piece of music. Though when I think of that song, two things happen, which are a shame, both of them. One, I think of uh, Dr. Evil, you know, just the two of us, the, he and, uh, and I think of Will Smith ruining the song, you know, with all yeah. due respect. You know what I mean? Well, this reminds me of in the U2 concert documentary, Rattle and Hum, when they announce Helter Skelter, and he goes, Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles. Well, tonight, we're stealing it back. Well, tonight, <laughs> right here on this podcast, we're stealing it back from Dr. Evil and Jaden Smith. Thank you. My demons have been exercised. <laughs> what the nerve of Bono, man. Some of the things... The band members must just sometimes go, are you kidding? Man, we just thought you couldn't top yourself anymore, Bono, but that's a good one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 think, I've, I think I've heard from Little Birdies that the drummer in particular <laughs> feels yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And sometimes yeah. you can, it's palpable. You can see out his face. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when you make $100 million for going on a tour, each guy, yeah. you learn to live with people. You, know? you, you sure do. You sure do. Let me go quickly through a couple of other pop-oriented things that were happening at the time. I, I don't know how much there is really to be said about this, other than the fact that Smokey Robinson kept it going, dude. You, you, we will see as we go through the decade of the 80s how many people from the 60s and the 70s were not able to integrate their thing with the thing that the kids were doing, and yet I think this song is a successful melding of the two. I can't love a song more than I love that song. <laughs> I love that song with everything in my heart. It gives me such feels. Smokey's beautiful voice. Yeah. He is so underrated as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. He wrote all of Motown. That's right. That's all right. He did. Mm-hmm. All the Temptations stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I always, I, there's some movies I get stuck in once they're on. The Temptations movie is always on, and I get stuck watching it. And Smokey is such a huge part of that. And he, he wrote so many songs out of that era. The man is a national treasure. I am still so glad he breathes the air we walk on. I am so grateful for that man. Well said. I don't know that people know that. You know what I think of him as? He's his generation's Pharrell. Because 
the Neptunes have been the architects of so many other people's superstardom, and just occasionally on the side, he keeps one for himself. That has been right, and that that is enough. uh, Just those leftovers to make him a household name as a solo performer as well. But the meat of the the legacy is actually the stuff that the material he's providing to other people. Absolutely, and you're talking about. If he never wrote a song by himself and just people gave him songs, he's got the most beautiful voices of all time. That's right. I mean, Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson are one and the same to me. If mm-hmm. one didn't exist, Motown would not be here. End of story. That's you know? right. And I believe they were childhood friends. Oh, yeah, they're still friends. They're, I, I saw some uh, Motown retrospective recently, and they were going through the tapes, and they were they had this friendship. We're like, oh, you remember that? No, she's saying that. No, Mary's saying that. And there was really an incredible uh, exchange and seeing this these two gigantic titans of industry talk about who sang what on a, on a Supreme song. It was wonderful. It was amazing. Which is, um, reminds me of what's the documentary? Is it standing in the shadows of Motown, which is uh-huh. about the band is the funk brothers. I think is what they were called. These guys who all consider themselves really serious, like jazz guys or whatever they were, who would just go slumming for a paycheck and, yep. and were the band on every Motown song, you know, yeah, that's those guys. Right. Or the bum bum, bum bum, bound, bound, the guy's like, this is the dumbest riff I've ever written. Stupid. <laughs> right. I was just rehearsing. And then, then like, someone was like, no, no, that's it. He goes, I'm just practicing. Because he thought it was so dumb. Bound, 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 bound. It's the, the simplest riff ever, you know? Yeah. And then out of here with my girl. You know, it's yeah. so funny. All how, that's another documentary. I'm sorry I keep bringing up documentaries, but you should. If you love music and you love to retain knowledge, these these is where you get them in these documentaries that are just little just historical documents of things that we love, you know? Yep. I don't know if we need to actually listen to Hold On Loosely by 38 Special, but it came out then. I love that song. Okay, well, we're gonna, well, th- well then we're going to do it. Good. Me too. Me too. I love the guitar in that. Oh. You know, when you have two drummers, you you got me. You know what I mean? The two drummer attack of 38 Special. Do you know that? No, I did not. All these bands that have two drummers, what's the other guy doing? It it came out of the Southern Rock thing. You know, the Allman Brothers had two Uh, two drummers. So 38 Special very much coming out of that. I I think even Black Oak, Arkansas had two drummers. It's a Southern Rock thing. It never made any sense to me. Believe it or not, they don't have two drummers anymore. They quickly got, you know, fiscally uh, responsible. Yeah. You know, I don't think we need two drummers, dude. But that song and the vocal by Don is just so incredible. I that's that one of those first guitar riffs you learn, bench, and you you pull your your index finger up to, to, on the next chord and the note. It's just I, I love that song. It's a perfectly written song and one of the first songs I re- I remember being on MTV. That was an early MTV video. There's a couple of acts from that era that, with all due respect to all of them and their fan bases, I don't know where you draw the line between that and She's a Beauty by The Tubes. Maybe not Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, but some of the other Survivor stuff. A Heart Needs a Second Chance. That's eight. Uh, I love that song. Oh my God. It's in my iTunes. I... 
I, I listen to these 80s countdowns still on Sirius XM and and every now and again there's just one of these that I'm like I remember this this was a song that was around at the time and I you know um what's the what's the big Asia hit only time will tell where yeah. you're like oh yeah. I didn't even realize what this was at the time and and yeah a heart needs a second chance by survivor is or was that 38 special it's 38 special it's so good. It's 38 special. And another, they changed singers too. That's right. So they did. Yeah. That's another hard thing to do. And I believe that was the number one song. I might be going on a limb, but I know it was a gigantic hit, but changing singers. And let's be honest, they were in that Southern rock lane, hardcore. A heart needs a second chance is straight up Peter Cetera, Chicago soundtrack oh, yeah. music. And they, they hit yeah. hard on with it, you know? And another one of those songs that you could listen to any 80s mix or playlist or channel or what have you, and you'll hear, you know, you'll hear Paul Abdul and Ghostbusters 7,000 times before you hear that song again, despite the fact that it was a huge hit at the time. And it's also very, very good. I, it's, I, you know, you and I are speaking the same language. Why some songs have like, let's say, decade legs, if you will, and others yeah. don't is, is a mystery to me. And obviously, you know, Sirius XM and people like that, they do the testing. You know, yeah. this isn't like they're, they're not just uh, curating it on their own sort of interests. They do the, the, the testing out there and they find out which songs people want to hear from that decade. So it's very mm -hmm. interesting to hear what a collective thinks is a classic as opposed to what the individual does. A Heart Needs a yeah. Second Chance should always be heard on any 80s decade radio in regular rotation, as far as I'm concerned. This next song is one that will most definitely turn up. Um, interestingly, there was so much retro stuff going on in the 80s. I almost feel like the 80s invented retro. Was there popular stuff in the 70s that sounded like the 50s? I, I, I know Frankie Valli had hits that recalled his own earlier stuff, as did the Beach Boys. But were there acts showing up, doing, uh, adopting and adapting shticks of decades of your before the 1980s? You know, I, I, I don't I don't think so. And let's be honest, rock and roll was not that old then. You know, no. It was about 20 years old. So how much can you go back? We've kind of mm -hmm. talked about this. I think you need about 10 to 15, sometimes 20 years for a decade to recycle itself. So mm -hmm. I don't think it had been recycle worthy at that point. Yeah, it was still new and fresh. They hadn't mined the bottom of the well of rock and roll yet. You know what I mean? No. They were still doing easy listening. They were doing heavy metal was starting. Uh, punk rock was starting. So it, retro hadn't had time yet. Uh, and I, I think straight, and it certainly wasn't commercially viable. You know, Stray Cats obviously were starting to do that in the early 80s, you know? So I think you're right about that. Well, that is precisely who we're talking about. And we may be forgetting somebody, but it might well have started with Brian Setzer and Stray Cats. And their signature hit was on, I think, their first album. It is self-titled, and uh, everyone will recall this. By far, and I've said this before, my favorite guitar player of all time. He always will be, he never won't be, and I love his voice as well. Brian Setzer. 
I have never heard anyone say that before, ever. I did find listening. I don't. I don't know when the last time is that I heard that song. Although I still think it's present in the culture to some extent or another. I'm, I'm assuming they still play that on eighty stations and stuff. It's very, very easy to water down and condense to bubblegum sized uh, a retro thing. That's the real McGill there. That guitar playing is, that's the real stuff, really at its finest. And, and, and that style of playing to me, that goes all the way back to, that's like a jazz style of like a Django Reinhardt where it almost kind of sounds like the guy's just sliding his hand up the neck, sliding it back and just hitting every single note along the way. And that's almost, but not quite what's really happening. It's actually incredibly skillful. It's very difficult to do because a lot of the guitar leads he's doing or the licks or the solos are chords. He's matching jazz chords and moving his finger. You know, when you're learning to play guitar and you go, Oh, I'm not, I'm going to stay away from that chord. Those are all yeah. the chords he's playing in his solos. So it's an incredibly proficient skill set. And then Brian Setzer was like 2021 20, when he was playing like that. You know, those who know know that Brian Setzer is one of the greatest guitar players of all time. I mean, there's just, and plus, he's able to sing and play. They were a three piece. You know what I mean? It's not like, mm-hmm. all right, let's start a Brian over here. He's singing, playing, hold it down, writing the songs. I put him in the, uh, the pantheons of the Jimi Hendrixes of the Stevie Ray Bonds to me because you know you hear people trying to play like Brian Setzer but they can't play like Brian Setzer you know it's as a guitar guy as somebody who was buying all the magazines when I started playing I don't recall hearing him in that conversation but I've got absolutely no reason whatsoever to to argue with you again it reminds me of there's this really weird like forgotten Woody Allen movie that I enjoy called Sweet and Lowdown where Sean Penn plays the second best guitar player in the world. And yep. the music is really, really wonderful. And Woody Allen, for all, for all of his, whatever, everybody knows his um, affinity for, for jazz. So it's rooted in a deep knowledge of it. it it's like that. And I, every, I, I was in France when we still did things like go to France uh, about a year ago. <laughs> and, and I was at a place and I saw a guy playing like that and it's, it's jaw dropping. It's a, a, you know, somebody who has a little bit of technique that I've been hammering at for 20 years. It's a completely, it's almost like a completely different instrument than what I play to play. Like yeah. That. Yeah. And like you said, you'll stop in your tracks to watch and just be blown away. It's such an effortless talent, you know, because as someone right. like you, who's been trying to play guitar, when it stayed at one level for 30 years, you know what I mean? Yeah. I learned to play the Ramones records 30 years ago and I never got any mm-hmm. better. Um, but uh, it's such a fine talent when you can play like that. You can play up and when you can play the guitar by itself and make it sound interesting. I'm always right. impressed by that. You know? Yeah, that's right. When you're basically your own, you're the rhythm and lead at the same that's time, right. which is exactly what, what he was able to do. Speaking of people who married musical proficiency with mainstream success, this might be the prototypical example of that in our musical culture and history this the landmark album of their career and the landmark single from it released in february of 
I have never been a huge Rush fan. Okay, never I been. Was a huge fascinated. Rush. I, was, I was fascinated to hear your your take on this. Never been a huge Rush fan, mm-hmm. but I am so impressed by what they do as a three piece in terms of these amazing songs that were written by Neil Peart, the drummer. Which, mm-hmm. by the way, another amazing documentary, the Rush documentary. There's so much footage; it's fascinating. Um, the sound that they can create live, his vocal shrills and keys that only dogs can hear, and the wealth of material they have, though I don't say a huge Rush fan, I completely respect and understand why they're the superstars they are. But they never spoke to me. I'm not never, if you're a jammy, if you at all flirt with a prog, a jam rock sensibility, you're not gonna speak to me, Mark McGrath. I had to throw that in again. I, just in case anyone had forgotten yeah. who's, who's speaking earlier. to you right now. <laughs> you know, I agree with everything you just said, I think, just about, except for like those four or five Rush songs, which I think may have all been on the nine-song album, Moving Pictures. Tom Sawyer, Limelight, Limelight, Limelight Will. Yeah, yeah Will's and- amazing. Yeah, I love those songs. Like you said, I love those songs. But I wouldn't go see Rush live. I no, just oh my, oh, oh what, what, what are you insane? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's crazy about Rush too, and this is, would never be done today. I think it took them four to five records to break through. I mean, they, they the moving pictures had they, this is their last chance. The label had given like three million bucks. They were a gigantic signing, an albatross for the label, and they had one last shot. And then he delivered this, and they're like, well, I think we'll be around for a while, you know? Uh, back in the days when artists were developed, you know? That's that's right. Now, I thought I had read that this was in a long line of um, of successful albums for them, but you might know better than I. No, you know, I, I think they might have had like a, a quasi-single on a record before to let them make this record, but this was the record that put them in the superstar status, is what I'm saying. They were flirting with, huh, should we keep them around? I, I believe. I don't know. It says here that at least their fourth album, I don't know if you're supposed to say 20, I think it is 2112, not 2112, was triple platinum in the okay. U.S. in 1976. And that's the record I'm speaking of that they, they had like, they had three or four before 2112, right? Uh, That was their third album. Yeah, I guess this was the record. Look, you guys don't make it on this, so forgive me on that. By moving pictures, they were well into the uh, arena stratosphere. It's interesting to think about what, well, first of all, it's always going to be with them, even if you can embrace the progginess of it. A lot of people are out on them because of Getty Lee's voice. I personally, I weirdly love it, but I can definitely understand where people would not agree with that. It also just makes me wonder what what the meaning of lyrics in rock songs really is because there's kind of there's the songs that are about what they're about sugar ray's hit songs you know what they're about and they express Mm -hmm. a relatable sentiment nobody on earth knows what he means by what you say about his company is what you say about society now i know neil pert was into Anne rand and that's taken from her you know atlas shrugged and stuff like that but as far as I can tell, <laughs> nobody knows what Aunt Rand was talking about either. Right. And yet, that's the perfect lyric for that piece of music, despite the fact that it is essentially meaningless to everyone who has ever heard it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really well said because, like, this isn't feels music, uh, Rush. It, it is sort of escapism, mm-hmm. if you will. 
You know, so if they were talking about love songs like, babe, I love you and I need you, it just wouldn't work. This is, a, this is, you know, drama, what Rush is. So you need that kind of lyrical sensibility like Tom Sawyer, you know. Yeah. Uh, Limelight's pretty straightforward. It's about getting on stage and rocking, you know, but of course it's Neil, Neil Peart's version of that. Um, and as far as Rush is concerned, I don't know if there's a more polarizing band in the universe than you name Rush. Because either line up over here or line up over here. You know, there's no like, yeah, Rush is okay. You know, either like, there's a real divisive, you know, it's almost like politics with Rush. Yeah, know? they're different from the other bands that I think of in that same way because I think the Grateful Dead and Fish are in that category yeah, of you're, yeah. you're with them or you're not. For sure. But in a, in a fairly different way way yeah they're pretty much that song you're right free will we know what that's about we know what limelight's about i can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend and yeah. but uh tom sawyer's essentially it's a sci-fi rock song yeah that's how that's yeah. how they function right and they, they made concept albums and that whole thing so they're they're not going to give you she loves you yeah 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 but they're going to give you they'll take you to the core of the earth explore that a little bit talk about celestial beings yeah. and bring you back down to the arena with, and rock your right wrestling. with a with a nine minute synth solo yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I got to say, the sounds coming off that stage with three people, man, will always blow me away. Yeah, yeah. And, and, rest, and, rest his soul. and as a music dork, yeah, Neil Pert is also a very polarizing guy. And how many, yes. how many Roto Toms? That's a. Does one man need to me, Neil, as many as you can reach? Go for it. Right. Yeah. You know, according to Neil. And, and what percentage of those drums did he actually use on stage? You know, which, but. But then again, who cares? Yeah. It's showbiz, baby. You know? I have a couple more songs. I think these are all of the hard rock and metal variety. This next band was an established, I think, arena act. But they wanted more. And so they had it even uh, more closely aligned with the mainstream, which I'm not really sure what that means, to be a pure metal band, but to make something that's more radio-friendly. I guess there is rock radio, right? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, in, in, to bring it back to layman's terms in the 80s, you know, you could be a heavy metal band, you could be a junkyard, you could be a faster pussycat, but if you wanted to go over there and pop radio, you had to drop that power ballad. You know what I mean? So there, there is that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a, there's a metal lane, but the idea was to cross over over here, make a bunch of money, and then come back over here to the metal lane. You know? Right. Well, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. Let me make this less hypothetical and just play you a classic song released in February of 1981 on the album Point of Entry by Judas Priest. I see what you're saying. You're saying be, beyond just like, well, I think heavy metal evolved too. I mean, Judas Priest, I look at as a classic rock band. Living After Midnight, I mean, that's that's just like, can't get enough of your love. You know what I mean? It, it's such a, so I, I know what you're saying now, what you, what you were saying, mm -hmm. getting out of that British Steel UK thing and then crossing over into these classic rock songs. Yeah, I guess that's what it means is we want to play bigger venues in America. Yeah, yeah, and I think you evolve too as a band. Mm -hmm. You know, you start off, you're this, you're that, you know, you're maybe you're not even playing music full time, you get signed, now you're playing full time, you get better as a musician, you get better as a songwriter. So you might see a thrashy sort of metal thing become 
a well-written classic rock song. Why? Because of the 10,000 hour philosophy. The more you play, the more you do it, the more you write the songs, the more comfortable you get with that. You know? yep. Here is uh, new music that was released at that same time on February 2nd of 1981 to be very specific by another iconic band of British heavy metal. However, they at this point had not found their final form. This was, I believe, the second and final album Iron Maiden made with the singer before Bruce Dickinson, a little bit more Paul Diano, yeah, right? a little bit more than a minor classic in its own right. Here is the title track from Killers. Such a cool, such a fun band. Oh, I love Iron Maiden, man. I love the harmony solos. I talk about bass-driven band. Oh yeah, Steve Harris. That is all bum 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 All Steve Harris just killing that bass. And I like Paul Diano's vocals back then. Yeah. You know, I, I I thought they fit well, but but Bruce just took it to a, another level. And still one of the best concerts you'll ever see to this day. Bruce Dickinson still hits every note. The same key, yeah. running around the stage. I don't know how he does it. Nobody ever galloped like Iron Maiden. Right, right. Steve Harris is the gallop king, you know, because he, he's the architect of all most of those songs. You know? That's right. That's Run to the hills. Yep. And a couple more minor lights from the hard rock world. Uh, Hanoi Rocks made their oh, yeah. debut with, to me, one of the great album titles bangkok shocks saigon shakes hanoi rocks amazing so good perfect and uh, i can't believe this is 81 that, that that i didn't know they came out that early wow uh, uh if i am led to believe yeah. and yeah. um i think this may have been produced by david johansson which kind of makes sense because sounds familiar yeah because hanoi rocks is sort of the scandinavian uh, new, new york, york new york dolls some people are just born to be on stage in front of a microphone. Some people are born to wear eyeliner. And sometimes it doesn't totally matter if they can't really sing. Right. And Michael Monroe is that guy. Like an Iggy Pop, there was nothing else for Joan Jett, nothing else for them to do but be a lead singer of a rock band. For Michael Monroe, it was Dead, Jail, or Rock and Roll. One of the best songs ever! You know that song, Tony? Sure, that was... Okay, so Guns N' Roses have all of their obvious influences. This is the one that they did not try to disguise at all. Indeed, when they made their own label imprint, Uzi Suicide, they re-released their debut EP and all of the Hanoi Rocks records. And I think Axl Rose duetted with him on his solo debut because they were really trying everything they could to launch Michael Monroe because Axl, I mean, Axl's a, his own guy and he's an individual and an original, but he owed quite a bit to Michael Monroe. Here is, uh, I think, probably the best song on that first Hanoi Rocks album. Yeah. 
the first in a long line of Scandinavian glam metal that would grace our shores. I am going to re revisit that record today. I forgot how great that was. And it, if Michael Monroe can't sing, man, let me sing like Michael Monroe. I mean, that, you know, it, it, it's all attitude. Yeah, yeah, down, down, down. It's just so cool. You know, it's like Mike Ness's voice. It's just so cool. You know what I mean? Whether you're hitting high seas like Mariah Carey, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear Michael Monroe sing. It's amazing. There's a short list of people, like if you somehow had no knowledge of the culture whatsoever and Steven Tyler walked into a room, you'd go, this guy is the singer in a very famous yes. rock band. If you right. run into David Johansson from New York Dolls, a.k.a. Buster Poindexter, you will know instantly this guy is a fucking dude. I have, I used to pass Michael Monroe here and there when I lived in New York's East Village, and I was around one time when he was trying some comeback around 2000. Even in mm -hmm. 2000, Michael Monroe is, he was born a rock star. It was just a matter of time until the world discovered it. Right. Uh, there's just a charisma about a person, yeah. you know, just sitting on an airplane seat. They didn't radiate charisma, and they're not like you, and yeah. you'll never be like them. Right. You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's an incredible... It's an incredible embodiment of, of essence and, and, and who your character is, you know? And finally, I cannot say that I was previously familiar with a metal band by the name of Riot. Does that mean anything to you? You know, they don't mean a lot to me. I know they mean a lot to other people. I know Anvil cites them as a big influence. Uh. I know even Metallica does. Uh, but yeah, Riot did never really spoke to me that much. Well, this song, I, I, I can't let you go without sharing this with the world and i the anvil thing definitely makes a lot of sense because the only other band i can think of um who would have had a song unironically entitled swords and tequila is anvil <laughs> they go well together <laughs> until they don't yeah yeah right exactly That's right. It's a rad will carry song. you through the night and carry you through it's the fight. Yeah, I know. When, when, when does it's that? When does that? It, when, when does that get its turn on the retro go round? Right. Well, it's a great song. It rocks. Uh, here's the problem: not one person in that control room in that studio had enough sense to go, guys. Anything but swords and tequila. <laughs> anything. Anything but you know swords and and, and chlamydia. <laughs> anything but swords. Yeah. And tequila, you never even got a chance. That song, that song rocks like a, you know, like, like, it feels like something I've heard before, mm -hmm. and I haven't heard that song. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll be the first. I don't know if you'd heard it before. I've never heard it before. Nope. You know, nope. and but it sounds like something I, I would have got a huge shot if it wasn't called Swords and Tequila. Only Sammy Hagar gets away with that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, elsewhere in February of 1981, Eric Clapton apparently was hospitalized twice for like two separate. One was an ailment and one was an injury. I don't know if he was sharing a room with Steven Tyler. He put out a kind of unremarkable. And this will be part of the story of this decade is the people from the 60s and 70s, as I mentioned, when we were listening to Smokey Robinson, who really didn't know where to go if they weren't doing their thing. It's a long way from his album, Another Ticket to uh, to.
to Tears in Heaven and MTV yeah. Unplugged. Willie Nelson is singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow because why not? He puts out like three albums a year. Al Green has made his second gospel album and people are still buying tickets to go see him live because he might mix in a couple non-Jesus <laughs> songs for a while there. The Stranglers make an album that is regarded as one of the foundational things for both goth and industrial despite being considered the worst of the stranglers albums called just like nothing on earth the selector are still doing selector things nazareth is trying to transition into the 80s sister sledge are rewriting we are family with a song called all american girls and motorhead and girls school um, have their hearts in the right place but perhaps did not have the necessary material to support a joint three song ep released under the name Head Girl. Hmm. Yeah, that seems like you're you're trying to uh, A, get out of your lane and try something new, and that just was destined for failure. <laughs> Head Girl, God bless you, but I, you know, I like my Lemmy by himself, you know? Precisely. And um, You know what's interesting, too? I, and I'll, I'll wrap it up quick. That you mentioned Stephen Tyler and Eric Clapton were able to navigate the waters, we didn't know then, into the 80s and 90s, but they're both guys who became sober. It's interesting how a sobriety might have played a part. Like people just A, staying around and B, being clear and cognizant and capable of continuing a career in music. It's interesting. Yeah, it definitely uh, it definitely beats the alternative. Eventually, yeah, ev yeah, yeah. eventually you are going to need that brain of yours. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, how many people missed the meeting with the label? Uh, a second chance meeting because they were hungover or were doing whatever the hell. You know what I'm saying? It just it, it's it's an interesting little uh, little button on what we were talking about and how to stay relevant. And that's it for the month of February. Who knows what wonders await us in March of 2021? I have a couple other things musically I want to talk to you about. Hopefully, I will speak to you sooner than a month from now so we can do a, a different themed episode. Yeah, I'm 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 now I. I I've got I'm time. I'm, I'm available now, so I'm ready. Beautiful. All right. Well, then I will speak to you shortly. And in the meantime, I, on behalf of all the listeners, thank you for your time, Mark. Thank you, Mr. Michael Tully. Take care. <laughs>